Good morning again. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. Uh, This passage is the second of the four servant songs of Isaiah that we are studying in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Now, each of Isaiah's servant songs prophesy the coming servant of the Lord who will rescue and comfort God's people. It's a word of comfort given to the exiles of Israel living in Babylon. Oh, the New Testament makes it clear that this servant is none other than Jesus Christ. So please follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 49. Coast and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. He hid me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I myself said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in futility. Yet my vindication is with the Lord and my reward is with my God. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says... It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, says to one who is despised, to one abhorred by people, to a servant of rulers. Kings will see, princes will stand up, and they will all bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel. And he has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. I will answer you in a time of favor. And I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people. To restore the land. To make them possess the desolate inheritances. Saying to the prisoners, come out. And to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They will feed along the pathways and their pastures will be on all the barren heights. They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them. For their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs. I will make all my mountains into a road and my highways will be raised up. See, these will come from far away, from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinem. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that it is your word that brings life by your spirit. Father, we pray that you would be at work doing that today. Father, I pray that you would make my words clear and faithful to your word. And uh, Father, that your word would accomplish its purposes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, history is full of missed opportunities. In the year 1876, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, and he offered to sell the patent for his invention to the large telegraph company, Western Union. The company still exists today. And he offered to sell it for just $100,000 so that they could help sell the telephone to the American people. Oh, this is how Western Union responded. Why would any person want to use this ungainly and impractical device? when he can send a messenger to the telegraph office and have a clear written message sent to any large city in the United States. 
In the 1970s, an employee of the Hewlett Packard Computer Company, Steve Wozniak, tried to get the company interested in a personal home computer that he was building. And to that point, computers were really only used by large corporations. They were not really used personally. But Hewlett Packard rejected his idea, telling him people would never use computers at home. So Steve Wozniak quit his job and joined his friend Steve Jobs to build the first personal computer in their garage. And so began the Apple Computer Company that we are so familiar with today. Uh, history is full of missed opportunities. Western Union, Hewlett Packard, a host of others have rejected ideas and inventions and investment opportunities that could have brought them great riches or great reward. And the missed opportunities of history are not just limited to business. We see in our passage today that the people of Israel missed a great spiritual opportunity. Uh, the servant of the Lord was sent by God or would be sent by God to restore and redeem them. But he would be rejected by Israel, the very people that he came to save. Yet we also see that though he would be rejected, the servant would be rejected. That the servant persevered in the work that the Lord sent him to do. And that he was given an even greater mission to be a light to the nations. And though initially rejected, the servant has now been vindicated and glorified as a people from every tribe and tongue and nation have responded to his word and have come into his light. And the servant will even be further vindicated and be fully and be fully glorified on the day that he returns. So I have three points to help us to think about those ideas this morning. The first is the servant's word. You see that in verses 1 and 2, the servant's word. The second, the servant's vindication, verses 3 through 7. And then the servant's call, verses 8 through 13. If you didn't get all that down, you can find that outline in the back of your bulletin. But first, the servant's word, verses 1 and 2. Our passage begins with the servant of the Lord calling out to the whole world, coast and islands, listen to me, distant peoples, pay attention. Well, he's calling to the nations of the earth, pleading with them to listen and heed the message of salvation that Israel did not. He calls so they will not miss their own opportunity to turn to him. Now is the day of salvation. And so look at verse 1. As part of this call, the servant proclaims that he was called and commissioned by God before he was born. And he was named while he was in his mother's womb. In other words, sending Jesus on his mission to save sinners was not God trying to desperately figure out how he was going to fix this broken world. It was not like God's plan B or some desperate attempt to make something good out of something that had gone horribly wrong out of his control. No, far from it. It was part of God's eternal plan from before time began to send Jesus into this world to save sinners. Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. Oh, church, the truth that we see in the Bible is that God ordered and directed each and every event of human history in order to send forth his son to save the world. 
He directed all of history in order to send forth his son to save the world. Now, that being said, I mean, how confident you, can you be that he holds your life in his hands? That the circumstances of your life are under his control. He ordered all of history to send forth his son at his appointed time. Brothers and sisters, your life is, is safely in the hands of the Lord. God sovereignly governs all things, all things according to his will and for his glory. Not just some things, not just the good things of life, not just the things we like. All things. And now I want to be clear that when Isaiah writes that Jesus was called before he was born and named in his mother's womb, he is not saying, he is not saying that Jesus was created. It is true that Jesus was born. There is a point in history about 2,000 years ago in which God the Son, the eternal Son of God, became man. But, and this is important, that is not the point that Jesus began to exist. Jesus has no beginning. He is eternal. Like the Father, he has always existed and he will always exist. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is now also fully man, but Jesus is fully God. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Word being Jesus. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created, not one thing was created that has been created. Brothers and sisters, Jesus could not have created all things if he did not exist. Jesus is eternal. He is fully God. Isaiah is simply using poetic language here to make the point that Jesus' mission of redemption was always part of God's plan. It was planned. It was purpose. And we see in verse 2 that God did indeed send Jesus to earth for a purpose. Jesus is described as a weapon ready to be revealed. He's a weapon hidden in the shadow of God's hand, ready to be unleashed at the proper time. God's ordained time. Think of Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, God's ordained time had come, God sent forth his son. In verse 2, the servant is described as a weapon, but we see he's also given a weapon. That God made his words like a sharp sword. Friends, Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus is the Word made flesh. You see that in John chapter 1. Those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. And that way, He is the Word because He reveals the Father. But Jesus also came to share a Word, to share a message of salvation. Jesus' weapon would be His Word. Jesus' weapon is His Word. And Christian, Jesus has left you with the same weapon that he came to earth armed with. You now, if you are a Christian, have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You've been given that same word, the same gospel to proclaim to others. And this word, this message that you've been entrusted with, that Jesus' church has been entrusted with, 
that is more powerful than any weapon on earth. So one English journalist said this of Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England during World War II. He wrote that Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Uh, Churchill was able to powerfully use his words to, to lift a nation during, during the war, to inspire England and its soldiers to meet the challenge of, of Nazi Germany, to endure hardship. His words were, were weapons. He sent them into battle. But Churchill only mobilized the English language. He was only able to mobilize human words. But we have something far more powerful, brothers and sisters. We have the living and active word of God. And we are able to mobilize it and send it into the world. It is only God's word that has the power to transform hearts and bring spiritual life to those who are dead in their sins. A Churchill's words encouraged a kingdom. God's words build a kingdom. It was by his word that God called creation into existence. He spoke and out of nothing, this world and everything in it has existed. Right now, God is holding the whole universe together by the power of his word. The reason the earth keeps going is because God is holding it together by his word. The wind and the waves obeyed Jesus while he was here on earth. I mean, how amazing is that? You know, the waves that so endlessly crash on the beach that you could go sit and watch until you die, they were stilled by the word of God. Well, God's word is powerful. His word brings life. Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb by his word, and he brings life to those who are dead in his sins by his word. Friends, if you are a Christian... You were saved when the Spirit of God breathed life into you through the Word of God and supernaturally brought you to repentance and faith. It was not through your own efforts, and at the end of the day, it was not even by your own will. You were born again by the living and enduring Word of God. And brothers and sisters, it is this Word that continues to change you even after you were saved. The Spirit uses it to, to transform you even more into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. It is this Word that saved you. It is also this Word that sanctifies you, grows you in holiness. Well, friends, this is why we place such an emphasis on the Word of God here at Emmanuel. Why we often just preach consecutively through books of the Bible. Because we want to unfold the Word of God to you. Because it is God's word that is powerful. And church, the transforming power of God's word should give you great hope as you share the gospel, as you unleash this weapon that God has entrusted you with, the sword of the spirit. It is not your, your own wisdom that brings life to dead sinners. And people are not saved because you thought of just the right thing to say at just the right time. But people are saved by the powerful word of God. And that means you don't have to come up with some, like, amazing evangelism strategy. You simply need to find ways to share the Word of God with people, to read it with others, to, to talk about it with others. Jesus' words are like a sharp sword that penetrates the human heart and brings life to dead sinners. That's the first point of the sermon, the, the servant's word. 
Second, verses 3 through 7, we see the servant's vindication. The servant of the Lord was sent forth with the powerful word of God. He is, in fact, the word incarnate, the word made flesh. But we see something surprising in these verses from Isaiah. The, the servant's mission does not seem to be successful. It does not seem to be successful, at least at first. Oh, look what that the servant was called to do. Verse 5, to bring Jacob back to God so that Israel might be gathered to him. Verse 6, he was sent forth to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the protected ones of Israel. But then look at verse 4. The servant says this, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. He laments the fact that his work seems to be for, for nothing. I think what we're, we're seeing here is, is something of the, the perspective from the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. If we were to go plop ourselves down right at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, right after his crucifixion, I think it's a perspective from there. I mean, from a human perspective, not God's perspective, but from a human perspective, when you get to the end of Jesus' life, his ministry does not seem like a great success. I mean, even before Jesus came, you just have the long history of Israel rejecting the word of the Lord. But Jesus was rejected by the people of Nazareth, his hometown. They couldn't believe that this carpenter that they had known since birth could be the Messiah. When Jesus was betrayed and arrested, Peter denied him. After his crucifixion, his 12 disciples, those closest to him who had walked with him for three years, go away in hiding because they're so afraid. By the time of his death, Jesus only seems to have a small group of true followers. And many, if not most of those, are from the, from the lowest rungs of society. They're the lowliest members of society. From an earthly perspective, it's not an impressive group. The Pharisees, the Jewish political and religious leaders of Jesus' day, they continually oppose Jesus. And they eventually turned him over to the Roman authorities to be crucified and killed. The Pharisees, after doing this, rallied the crowds of Jerusalem to join them in yelling, Crucify him! Crucify him! I mean, in the end, Jesus was crucified by those he came to save. He came as the Messiah to, to gather Israel back. And yet they missed it. They missed it. Nevertheless, Jesus faithfully persevered. He kept to the task that God had had sent him for and went obediently to the cross. Think back to to Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, the founders of Apple, for a moment. They kept building a personal home computer, even though one of the most powerful computer companies in the world at the time, Hewlett-Packard, told them, bad idea, no one's ever going to buy it. Why did they persevere? Uh, They persevered because they believed that they would one day be proven right. They thought Hewlett Packard is wrong. We're right. We're going to one day be vindicated in this idea. And so they persevered. Uh, Friends, this is the, the same thing that helped Jesus persevere in his work. He knew that he would be vindicated. I look again at verses four and five. Though the servant says, that he seems to have labored in vain, he had confidence that his vindication is with the Lord. 
and my reward is with my God. Though he was dishonored and crucified by those he came to save, he was strengthened by the the fact that he was honored in the sight of the Lord. And my God is my strength. We see in Hebrews that it was the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was not concerned with the opinion of others. He was not concerned with the opinion of those who rejected him. He was concerned with the honor that comes from the Lord. Jesus trusted the Lord to vindicate him, to to honor him, to prove him right, to reward him. And church, this should be an encouragement to you. And how can you go on when your own life seems to be in vain? When, When things do not turn out how you dreamed. When following the Lord seems to bring only hardship, you might be mocked or or mistreated because of your faith. Perhaps when your life just seems to be making no impact, when there does not seem to be any fruit in your ministry. Friends, you can endure by resting in the same truths that Jesus rested in. Your ultimate vindication and reward is with the Lord. Those who are faithful will be honored in the sight of the Lord. They are currently honored in the sight of the Lord. The results are in the hands of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the Lord does not care about earthly success or the fruit of your ministry. He does not care whether you are famous or influential or whether you accomplish what the world might call great or successful. The Lord cares most of all that you are faithful. The Lord cares most of all that you are faithful. Are you faithful to use the time and talents and resources that he has given you for his glory? Are you faithful to obey when choosing sin seems easier? When choosing the wide path and the easy path seems easier than the narrow gate? Are you faithful to share the gospel and to claim the name of Christ even when you are mocked or perhaps even persecuted? Are you faithful to take up your cross and follow him, to deny yourself and your desires, to take up your cross and follow him? I love how one writer puts it in reflecting on verses 4 and 5 here. He says despondency or deep discouragement arises, comes about through listening to ourselves and our self-assessment instead of looking to God, recalling his purposes living according to our dignity in him, and rediscovering in him our source of power. Friends, when we look at things from an earthly perspective, when we rely on our own self-assessment, things can quickly seem discouraging, sometimes even, even hopeless. There are times that our labor feels like it is in vain. And so instead, we must fix our eyes on the Lord remind ourselves that God is the sovereign ruler of the world and he is assuredly accomplishing his purposes. What he calls us to is faithfulness. The Lord will assuredly accomplish his purposes. Church, these are the truths that have sustained missionaries in hard places. Places where they have seen little fruit. Adoniram Judson, the famous missionary to Burma in the 1800s, labored in that country for six years until he saw his first convert, 
He endured the death of many of his family members during that time. I would imagine that there are times that Adoniram Judson wondered whether his labor was in vain. And in fact, other people, in fact, did wonder that about Adoniram Judson's work. During those years, he was pressured and criticized by those who sent him out due to a lack of conversions. They wondered whether he was the right man for the job, whether he was just laboring in vain among these people. Although Judson admitted to times of discouragement, this is how he replied to those back home. There is an almighty and faithful God who will perform his promises. God and his promises were his only hope for success, and they were his strength. Looking back years later, this is the advice that Judson gave to young missionaries. You will be met with disappointments and discouragements, which will lead you at first almost to regret that you have embarked in the cause. Beware, lest you become disheartened at commencing your work or continuing your work. What was Judson doing there to young missionaries? He was encouraging them to be faithful. I would imagine that there are times that we can relate to Adoniram Judson. Maybe following the Lord seems to be bringing us no earthly benefit. Am I following the Lord in vain? Maybe your children are not walking with the Lord, or your loved ones keep rejecting the gospel that you share. Maybe you wonder whether your labor is in vain. I mean, how many people are here in Fujera and need to hear the gospel? And yet, how many are here in this church? How many people come once or twice but never respond or engage? How many that we invite never come? Maybe we wonder if we are laboring in vain. I know that's a thought I can sometimes struggle with as your pastor. Those are times that we have to remind ourselves that it is God's word, not our words, that are powerful. Those are the times that we have to remind ourselves that God is in control and the results are his. Those are the times that we have to remind ourselves that what the Lord rewards and what he honors and what he vindicates is faithfulness, not fruitfulness. He will one day vindicate all those who remain faithful to him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus trusted in the vindication of the Lord. And we see something of that vindication in verses 6 and 7. Israel's missed opportunity, their rejection of Jesus, would lead to God's message of salvation going out to the ends of the earth, to accomplishing something profound. Look at verse 6. God the Father said to God the Son, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And God the Father commissioned God the Son to do more than just bring Israel back to him. He commissioned him to be a light to to all people, to dispel darkness across the, the whole world, to save a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In Romans chapter 11, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writes this. Uh, thinking about this fact that that Israel does not seem to have responded to the Lord, and yet the Gentiles, those who are not Israel, have. He writes this, By Israel's transgression, that is, by Israel's sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. Because Israel consistently disobeyed the Lord, 
because they rejected the Messiah, God would form a new people, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. God's people would no longer just be the nation of Israel, but all who would call on the name of the Lord, Jew and Gentile alike. And this new opportunity of salvation for the nations would be the glorious means by which God would draw Israel back to himself. Friends, God has not cast off the Jewish people, but he invites them even now to place their trust in Jesus. The gospel message, his powerful word, continues to go forth to them just like it does to us. God has always been faithful throughout history in the Old Testament and even now to preserve a remnant of the people of Israel, a remnant of the Jewish people who have in fact placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And there are hints, at least strong hints in the Bible, that one day many Jews will respond to this good news of salvation that has gone to the Gentiles, and they will return in mass to the Lord. Friends, God has not forgotten his people. And now even as I say that, I, I do not want to leave you with the wrong idea that the message of salvation going out to the ends of the earth the message of salvation going to the world was somehow not part of God's eternal plan, that this part at least is plan B. No, 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 no. This was always part of God's eternal plan as well, his predetermined plan. This is how God in his infinite wisdom always intended it to happen. Remember the promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. At the end of God's promise to Abraham, this is what he declared. All the peoples, all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We saw in Exodus that Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to be a nation set apart and devoted to the Lord. But in doing that, they were to be an example of the blessings of living in relationship to the Lord. In that way, they were to be a light to the nations. They were, invite, they were to invite people to come and taste and see that the Lord is indeed good be a shining example to the other nations of the earth. But Israel failed in this mission. They did not live as a holy nation set apart to God. Instead, they lived just like all the ungodly nations around them. In fact, Isaiah is writing to the people of Judah who were living in exile in Babylon because of their sin. Because they had failed in this mission, God sent judgment through the nation of Babylon to rip them out of the land and to send them into exile. But in Isaiah, we see God promising to renew Israel. He promised to, to raise up a true and a faithful Israel to fulfill his purposes. But what we find is that this true and faithful Israel is not a nation, but a person. It is Jesus himself who is true and faithful Israel. Jesus is the true and faithful Israelite. Jesus is an Israelite, the only one who was ever truly faithful to God, who embodied all that Israel was called to be. I look back at verse 3 of our text for a moment. You may have noticed this already, but in that verse, the servant is actually called Israel. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Well, that sounds kind of confusing. Is the servant the nation of Israel or is the servant Jesus? Well, it is clear from our passage that the servant cannot be the nation of Israel itself. Because how could Israel bring back Israel? How could Israel go gather Israel 
as the servant was commissioned to do. So how are we to understand verse 3? Well, church, remember that before Israel was a nation, Israel was a person. God himself gave Jacob the name Israel. The nation is called Israel because the 12 sons of Jacob make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when God calls the servant Israel in verse 3, he is saying that the servant is going to be the family head of a new people of God. He's going to stand at the, the, the head of restored and redeemed Israel as Jacob somehow stood at the head of the tribes of Israel. It is Jesus who is true and faithful Israel. Jesus would fulfill all that Israel was supposed to be. He would be the representative. Where they disobeyed, Jesus would obey. Where they doubted, Jesus would trust. Where they failed to be a light to the nations, Jesus would succeed. And because Jesus is true and faithful Israel, all who are united to Jesus by faith become true children of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. All who place their faith in Jesus, true Israel, whether Jew or Gentile, become the true children of God. As one writer puts it, The good news of the gospel tells us that we can be the true Israel of God as well. If we are in Christ, we share in the privileges and relationship he enjoys as God's true son. We are not sons of God by nature. Rather, we are sons of God by adoption, his beloved children in Christ. And as such, we inherit all the promises given to the old covenant Israel. Those promises are for all of God's people, the true Israel of God consisting of Jews and Gentiles who are united to Christ by faith alone. Friends, this is deep theology, but it's also wonderful good news. Because in this, we see something of the vindication of Jesus. He was rejected, and he was crucified by those he came to save. But friends, we know the rest of the story. What happened to Jesus after his crucifixion? God vindicated him by raising him from the dead. He was raised and exalted back to the right hand of the Father. And following his resurrection, the Holy Spirit came in power on the apostles, who then boldly proclaimed the good news of salvation. They took up the weapon of his word and the power of the Spirit. And people now from every tribe and tongue and people and and nation have responded, and they continue to respond. God's kingdom continues to grow and expand. Jesus has been vindicated. And look at verse 7. God promises a future vindication for Jesus as well. Jesus, the one who is despised and rejected and abhorred by the people while on earth, who is despised and rejected and abhorred by us in our sinful natures, well, he will be fully and finally vindicated. One day, kings will see and princes will stand up and they will all bow down. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. One day, the servant's mission will be fully accomplished. One day, Jesus will return with trumpet sounds and in glory for all to see. And will receive his full reward and his full vindication. 
Brothers and sisters, we have God's powerful word. We know the end of the story. And the end of that story is that Jesus wins. We win. Jesus will be fully vindicated. And we, he will vindicate all his people who have remained faithful to him as well. But until that day, the servants call to the nations from verse 1 to pay attention and to listen. Well, that message continues to ring out. That brings us to the third and final point of the sermon, the servant's call. Look at verse 8. This is what the Lord says. I will answer you in a time of favor, and I will help you in the day of salvation. I will keep you, and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to make them possess the desolate inheritances. The, the Lord promises to be with the servant, to answer him. To, to strengthen him and sustain him, to help him in the day of salvation. Now, when is this day of salvation? When is it that the Lord is speaking of? Well, turn back with me in your Bibles or your bulletins to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 through 6-2, which we read earlier. In those verses, as we thought about earlier, the Apostle Paul reveals that now is the day of salvation. Right now, today, the time in between Jesus' resurrection and his return. The time between his first advent and his second advent. Look again at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. I want you to, to notice a, a few important things from those verses. First, if you are here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're just not sure. Let me urge you not to miss your own opportunity. Don't miss your opportunity. Do not be like Western Union who missed out on the patent to the telephone. Do not be like Hewlett Packard, who missed out on being first to market with a personal computer. Do not be like Israel, who missed the Messiah. Friends, do not miss out on Jesus. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus has come. He has died and rose again that you might be forgiven and transformed and brought back into right relationship with God. And Jesus is even now calling to you calling you to come and find salvation in him. But friends, you must know that that window of opportunity will not remain open forever. One day you will die, and after that comes judgment. That day could be today. could be on your drive home. But friends, even if you make it to the end of your earthly life, you will die. And even if you do not, it's because Jesus will return before you die to judge the living and the dead, and only those who have responded to his call will be saved. Friends, turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. 
be reconciled to God. My friends, if you have any questions about what that looks like, what it means to be reconciled to God, what it means to be saved, I would be more than happy to talk with you more after the service, anytime this week or in the coming weeks. So please come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Ben. Come talk to another member of the church. But Christian, I also want you to notice from these verses in 2 Corinthians that you are called to share in the servant's mission. In 2 Corinthians, it says that we participate, we work with him. We are called to share in the servant's mission. Jesus' mission of calling people out of darkness and into his light continues today. And he has enlisted his church in that mission. Jesus has enlisted his church to carry out that mission. Jesus has commissioned his church to be ambassadors and to go and make disciples of all nations. Well, we are to plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Well, friends, one very simple way that you could work on that even this month is just to invite people to church during the Christmas season. People are often more receptive to come during this time of the year. It's a nice, big, religious time of the year. People are more open. Well, invite people. That not by, by itself, that is not urging people to be reconciled to God. But if they come, you know they're going to hear the good news of salvation. So take time over the next weeks. Invite your friends, people who don't know God. Do you have a desire to see them be reconciled to God? Brothers and sisters, you have a mission during your time on earth. You have been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples. He has called you and commissioned you to continue his mission on earth. Well, church, we don't want to hide the fact that this is not an easy mission. But I do want you to see from these verses in Isaiah that it is a hope-filled mission. Just look at the language of verses 9 and 10. To those Jesus has called out of darkness, what does he promise? He promises that they will feed along the pathways and their pastures will be on all the barren heights. They will not hunger or thirst. The scorching heat or sun will not strike them. But their compassionate one will guide them and lead them to springs. Just notice all the, the shepherding language just sprinkled throughout those verses. Friends, Jesus is our good shepherd as we just sang about. Life under the care of Jesus is good. He even makes the barren heights, the things that are too high and cold for things to grow in, sprout in abundance for his people. A life on earth certainly may come with difficulties. You certainly may walk dark paths, times of grief and, and struggle. If you're faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel, you will inevitably share in Jesus' suffering and rejection. But brothers and sisters, Jesus promises to be with you. He promises to strengthen you when you are weary. He promises to provide for you and protect you. The scorching sun will not strike you. You even now get a taste of his living waters and you will one day be led to bountiful springs. Friends, the good shepherd is your shepherd if you are his. You even now enjoy the blessings of life in his kingdom and, and under his rules. The joy of, of knowing him, the joy of being freed from your bondage to sin. And you will one day be led to the celestial city, the heavenly Jerusalem, in which the rivers of the water of life flow forevermore. Well, church, it is a hope-filled mission. It is a hope-filled mission because Jesus is with you.
And it is a hope-filled mission because we have this sure hope that people will indeed respond to the gospel. God's word is powerful. Look again at verses 12 and 13. The Lord is removing every obstacle. He's making mountains into roads and raising highways up. If you've ever driven from Fujairah to Dubai, you've seen those heavy trucks that are, that are laden with goods that can barely make it over the mountains. They, they're creeping up in the right-hand most lane. Some of them overheat, and they never make it over the mountains. But what is God going to do? He's going to smooth the way, level the mountains, Make a straight and easy road for a people from north and from west and from, from distant lands to come to him. He has opened the door of salvation. Made a smooth, smooth road by his death on the cross. Friends, if you are here not a Christian, all you have to do is turn from your sins and place your faith in him. And to you, church, God is at work building his church. As Adoniram Judson said, there is an almighty and faithful God who will perform his promises. You can proclaim the gospel with the confident hope that God will certainly save a people for himself, for his glory. They may not be the people to whom you were sent. They may not be your family. They may not be your friends. They may not be the people that the Lord places you in contact with. In fact, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 6, you see that Isaiah's ministry was to harden hearts through the preaching of his word. But God will indeed save a people. The results are the Lord's. But we have the confident hope that God is, and God will continue to bring a people from north and south and east and west. He's leveled the mountains. He's raised up the valleys. He's made a smooth road for people to stream to him. And so brothers and sisters, in response to these wonderful truths, God calls you to worship. That's what we see in verse 13. Shout for joy, you heavens. Earth rejoice. Mountains break into joyful shouts, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Brothers and sisters, when is the last time you took some time just to thank God for saving you? When is the last time you took some extended time to reflect on the glory of your salvation, the goodness of your salvation, the kindness of the Lord? You're no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer blind. God has given you your sight. He has set you free. What is to be our response? It's to rejoice. All of heaven and earth, including the rocks and mountains, will one day shout for joy about redemption that has come in Jesus Christ. He is restoring all things. He is making all things new. And he will one day free the entire universe from the curse of sin. All of creation is groaning in expectation for the coming of King Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, this is the vision, this is the vision that the Apostle John sees at the end of history. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Church, as God's redeemed people, as people of the servant, as people of the king, we will join in that praise for all eternity. But you don't have to wait. You can praise him now. You can rejoice now. God has saved you. Take your opportunity. 
Rejoice in the Lord. Proclaim His praises. Let's pray.